Hello and welcome to the Football Collective Podcast, a football research podcast for debate, discussion, highlighting members of the collective, their research and all things football within the world of academia. First off, we spoke with John Myers from Leeds Beckett University. I'm a lecturer in sport business management, sport marketing at Leeds Beckett University. Um, I've been doing that since 2017 now. Um, graduated in sport business management, undergrad and masters there, and just wanted to remain a student. So I thought I'd, I'd just thought I'd stay there for work as well. Um, that's where I met Paul, and Paul's been a big sort of Paul Weddup's been a big influence on my research and how I've and my work in academia. So I've so I've sort of been working with him in that way, and he introduced me to the collective, and I've not looked back ever since. I think we've um, spoken with a lot of people from the collective doing doing research and things like that. I'm an early career researcher, but my interests are pretty much in looking at applying economic sociology to the sport, business, and marketing world looking at predominantly around social network analysis, social capital, all those sort of things. I'm a PhD student, so I'm currently looking at the economic networks and markets of the horse racing industry, so the labour markets of jockeys, horse studs, things like that, owners, trainers, producer markets, and then also consumer markets, looking at um, us as gamblers, us just attending horse racing meets because people don't always go just for the gambling and things like that, and also tips to markets and how tipsters revolve and in sort of act as the middleman between a lot of different a lot of these markets. So I know we've discussed it before, but if you just want to tell us a little bit more about your theoretical view, especially on gambling and how that works within um, economic sociology. Yeah. So uh, since I did my undergraduate dissertation all on gambling, I've been hooked on research in the area ever since. Um, my Theoretical view is around the networked view of gambling. So I think, I believe gambling is a social activity predominantly and and a sociability if you look at George Thimble's sociological view. And as a sociability, 
I believe gambling can be seen as a resource for the investment and return for social and cultural capital. Um, now, in open networks, with gambling as one element of, a, of multiple components linking people together, people who are connected to a multiplex of ties, gambling can be enjoyed. Um, however, I also think that when gambling revolves around closed networks and is the only tie binding network often, or, is, or gambling is not an open discussion and it's hidden from people within the network, within someone's network, it can become dangerous and that's when you see problems and pathological problem gambling, gambling harm and all the um, key words that we have, well, have researched from different areas and perspectives. It is some really fascinating stuff and I can't wait to get further on to that in part two of this uh, special. Mm. So do you just want to tell us a little bit about your view of gambling more in general, sort of We'll set the background for this um, of your view, and then we'll go into more of a focus on to football and gambling. Yeah, and I mean, I think taking my view and take probably economic sociology, you can't take people's thoughts and opinions out of it. All stems from their social orbit. It all stems from um, their their ties, some family, friendship, historic what's happened previously within their lives. Um, but from what I've seen, I think. The, the origins of gambling itself and gambling consumption tends to be a social activity. Um, I don't know about other people, but I'd, I'd ask them to think about the first time they gamble. Um, it doesn't happen in isolation. It doesn't happen, I don't think, I wouldn't suspect it happened from seeing a TV advert or seeing a shirt sponsor. I'd imagine it comes from possibly a family or friendship tie originally. Um, maybe it's the first time you went to the horse racing with um, dad's, granddad's, friends. Maybe it was first time going down to the pub with other with people. Um, I know a lot of students end up first being introduced to gambling through friends who have who do it within their dorms or within their their courses. And um, and I all and that's sort of my general view of gambling that it comes from a social um, starting point. I also believe the industry tends to exploit that. And I don't want to be. I don't want any lawyers to come after me for saying that. Um, but I, I do believe that the industry can exploit what is predominantly. And I can take this further. So I mean, I believe gambling is instilled unknowingly in the UK culture from a young age. Um, if we take one of the leading academics in gambling knowledge, Mark Griffiths, his definition um, could include things like the McDonald's monopoly and Kinder Eggs and anything like that as gambling which people do from three, four years old, if not younger, even before you get to FIFA Ultimate Team and how that's gambling, and which supposedly anybody over the age of three can play. Um, taking it back to my social orbit, I think I, got, I, gamble, I gambled at the amusements coming from the North East. I mean, I used to visit Redcar and Whitby regularly. I would be on the amusements from a young age, and so would others. Um, and this instills gambling within a young age before people get to the ages of 16 or 18 when scratch cards, national lottery tickets, which are often seen as a good 16th birthday present or even secret Santa present, things like that, get introduced. And these all embed gambling within our culture. Um, but then we, get, we seem to be shocked when we see a young lad gambling on his phone or have multiple gambling apps on his phone um, if they visit a bookies or to discuss betting on the football. Um, I think academics listening to this will have a seminar full of students discussing gambling and we tend to be shocked 
but it's been instilled. I'd say gambling's been instilled from a very young age. I can remember personally going um, to the dogs as a kid, as a as a northern lad, and you know when you you're putting a quid and on the, the Grand National and maybe a quid on the first goal scorer when uh, it's a big game. So one of the things you mentioned to me away from this before this was about the embeddedness of football in UK culture. So if we carry on that theme of culture, um, do you want to talk to us a bit more about uh, gambling? in a sort of social perspective of football and, and how that ties into to the culture of football? Yeah, I think um, I think they've been intertwined from a very, very early age of football's origins. Not, I think the argument now is that there's a normalisation of gambling in football. Um, and I'll come on to later on why I think we argue that now. Um, but I'd, I'd argue it in a different sense. But the intertwining of football and gambling has come from... As early, I think there's evidence as early as 1887. Um, and then you've got the, net, the football pools that were created in 1923. And a lot of the way we consume and the way we discuss football comes from that relationship and the symbiotic relationship between gambling and football. Um, we've we've spoke about um, the odds being a part of TV and radio, radio punditry since since as early as I can remember. Um, the magnificent Leicester title wins always referred to as the 5,000 to one shot um, and adds the glamour and the, adds the romance to how well that was put together and how well Leicester won that league. Um, and the jargon, and it all adds to the cultural capital of football, I'd suggest, like those, the etiquettes and some of the discussion, the jargon, getting access into football discussions come from understanding the gambling industry as well within within our society within our socialized groups and things like that how important would you say that that is now to to sort of the culture of maybe the weekend football fan or just even the the everyday football fan now i'm I, i'm trying to do some research on it i think there's a lot of other people who will be doing research on it as well and understanding that but and and there's gambling academic well gambling academic sounds awful <laughs> But there's people who are researching gambling who are, who identify that we need to know around the social capital of gambling and football. We need to understand how gambling, not only problem gambling, but regular gambling plays an aspect in football. And um, and that and it's obvious to be there. I think we can all see that. But I don't think it's... I think an more of an understanding is needed. So where do you think the sort of bigger gaps in that research uh, are and where do you hope to, to go with that? I, I hope that uh, and I mean when you when you search for gambling on Google Scholar or on any of the sort of academic websites when you're searching it always looks it always has problem in front of it so it's always problem gambling or pathological gambling um, but that's not that's not academic research or any research from a population perspective like um Obviously, with the stats on the levels of problem gambling, and not all the stats are seen to be true, and not and everybody accepts the stats. But until we start seeing more research done on understanding the over everybody that in, is involved within sport sport betting and betting on the football, I don't think we'll improve our knowledge and be able to help those who are problem gamblers or those or understand our um, the critical nature of what's happening between problem gamblers and non-problem gamblers. So if we look at gambling and football from a business uh, perspective, 
So yeah, um, and you 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 talked about a historical view of gambling, and you also spoke to me earlier about the issue of normalisation of gambling. Um, what's mm. your what's your take on that? Um, so I think the argument around the normalisation of normalisation of gambling is actually more around ease of gambling. I think it's easier now. Not it's not normalised. I think it's always been a part of football and culture. With easier, which and that needs regulation to protect those who are vulnerable. And um, and I think we need the, the gambling act is outdated, and I, um, everybody will say that. I, I hope. Um, and once that is, once we have further regulation, we can help protect those who are vulnerable. But we need to do that without increasing the stigma around um, gambling being a deviant activity. Because for the majority, it's not. And, and there's a lot of those who enjoy gambling, enjoy gambling, and gamble within their means. So what what would you say as, as well now about we've had the story coming of Wayne Rooney coming to Derby wearing the number thirty two and thirty two red have been almost accused of being the big contributor to to bringing him to the club. Um, so what's your sort of view on the sponsorship of football teams? I know the EFL, nearly every team, including uh, both of the teams we support, are sponsored by thirty two red. I think it is, um, and the majority are sponsored by gambling companies. What's your sort of view on that? Yeah, um, and I don't want to be advertising another podcast, but I mean, Kieran Maguire's Price of Football podcast shed some good light on the no, no problem gambling with industry. Your, uh, no problem with you saying that. He's a good friend of the show, um, and it's a good oh, podcast. Well, I, I'm a very keen listener to his show, so I'm just putting it out there, because I've seen he's got a book out as well, if he wants to, um, if, he, if, if he has any copies going. But, available um, at all stores. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I think... Um, the industry, as I said previously, exploits um, the, gam- the predominant social nature of gambling. Um, there's Rob Davies of The Guardian has discussed how there's a lot of malfeasance within the gambling industry and compared to other industries and what and some of the, um, I think he called it a Wild West nature of what some of the companies do. Um, I would agree in some aspects. I think, there are not, I think there's some companies who do good out there. And a and a more safer players within the within the industry, but um, the industry, the sponsorship of like such as the thirty two red is a bit of a problem, and um, and it isn't necessarily a good thing for the for the for, for, for football. Um, but until there's somebody who can offer similar input financially into the sport, I wouldn't. I don't see gambling's input changing much yet. See, I would argue that maybe these gambling sponsors would be on the same level of Red Bull. Um, and if Red Bull were to take over a British club and do the same as they did with Leipzig or Salzburg, I don't think they'd be as, as much of an eyebrow raised. What What would you think about that? Um, well, I th- the, the, the opportunity would be there, I think. Um, not, you tend to get stuck in a bubble when you see a lot of people arguing again, against the gambling industry in, in football. Um but there's, there's probably there's probably again like there's there's a lot of people who probably don't have a, don't see a problem and I don't if you're a Stoke City fan I don't think you'd have a problem at all. Um, in the past few years, now that they're performing badly, you might want them out, but you'd be quite happy for the years to have seen the amount of in, investment that three six five have had with Stoke City. If we stay on the, the theme of Bet three six five as well, we also discussed. Um, 
the the news that came out about Bet365 streaming games with an in-play offer, I think it was. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and, and your view on that? Um, yeah, this is probably where I get a bit controversial. I don't think, I think it was a bit over-exaggerated in the press and in the news because um, it has been happening for a long time. I think you can, it's been a few, there's a few betting companies where you've been able to watch sport and football on them after you've placed a bet. Now, I don't. I didn't see Bet365 advertising much. I saw one tweet, got one retweet, a couple of likes. And, that, I mean, if you're the social media manager of Bet365, you wouldn't have been happy with that. But um, I can see where the problem, why people think it's a problem. But, I mean, it's the same It's the same way, the same thing that happens in horse racing. Uh, if you place a bet on horse racing, you get to see that, that race. Um, I don't see why... I don't see the problem with it also happening in football because people have they've already got the app. They've already decided to to either follow Bet365 Twitter account and be introduced to that way of watching the football or have already got the app in order to watch to place a bet and watch the football. So, um, again, it's probably a controversial view, but I do believe that it was probably a bit over-exaggerated in the media. I think this is um, good. Oh, sorry. Carry on. No, you go, Josh. I think this is good where your sort of research comes in. It gives it more of a balanced view. Um, as you said, there is quite a lot of um, negativity and there is almost a stigma attached to gambling, especially in academia. Um, and we, dis- yeah. we discussed that as well. Do you want to talk about um, that a bit more? Yeah, I mean, I think for, from what I've seen, most academics are an imbalanced perspective of gambling is 100% awful. And I think it's a dangerous position to be in. And I think it's a dangerous position to have from quite a important aspect of society having a lot of academics that be 100 against it um won't allow improvement won't allow for um balanced argument and won't allow for the regulation that the industry needs um referring back to sponsorship and advertising and things like that i don't necessarily agree with the amount of sponsorship and advertising um but it's because the gambling industry is such a crowded and global marketplace Companies need to be on, need to be advertising, need to be on shared sponsorships to establish brand credibility. 32 Red do it so much with Aston Villa, Middlesbrough, Leeds, as we've said, that they have to, because it's direct access to their primary target market. And they might not have heard of 32 Red because they are, because there's Skybet around, there's Bet365, there's Marathon. And that's, and before you get to William Hills, Ladbrokes, Corals, there's so many there that need to do it to establish brand credibility or they'll have no consumer base or have no customers. Um, that's a factor of the Gambling Act. Um, that's probably not fit for purpose, as I've said. Um, and I think there's hopefully in the future there's going to be a lot of scope to update that and to have a new Gambling Act. Um, so, yeah. Linking back to academia again, academics don't want industry funding, they don't want to work with industry um, because, again, perceived it as 100% awful. They see that there's 17 championship sponsors who are gambling companies and they think they're not they're not nice people so we don't, we don't want to take their funding for research. Um, but through the right ethical and integrity processes, I don't see why using their money can't be a problem um, or is a problem. I think it, it's, it's required. Their CSR, their and things like that. We can 
it can be used for good in order to understand the population of gamblers that are out there and support them if anybody's vulnerable, if, any, if anybody's experiencing harm and things like that. So where do you think the, the big sort of room for growth is in the dis, in this discussion in academia? I definitely say gambling, gambling and football fans, um, gambling and sports fans in general. Um, what do, what do sports fans? How do sports fans use um, gambling? What do they? How do they perceive it within football in this football and sphere? Um, I definitely like to see more network analysis and networks being and economic sociology being used in, in gambling research. I express my my viewpoint at the start, and I think it's got a lot of exploration um, within there, and. Let's let's not just research problem gambling because we need. I think we need to the average football fan, yeah, footballers, to, from amateur up to professional. What's the relationship with gambling? Because at the minute, it's on. It's only the negative that's in there, where where I suppose a lot of people will use it to make friends. A lot of people use it that, to bind their, and strengthen friendships. John's research, John's thoughts bring up some really interesting points, especially for those interested in sociology, and more specifically network theory. What is the role of gambling for the football fan? And also, what is the role of gambling in culture, especially in the UK? Given that there is such a historical significance of gambling within football and society, We then wanted the view and research expertise of a psychologist. So we sat down with Steve Sharman from the University of East London to get his perspective of betting on the beautiful game. Uh, my name is Steve Sharman. I'm a research fellow at the University of East London. Um, I'm, my work there is funded by the Society for the Study of Addiction. Um, how I got involved with the collective, it was interesting. I was trying to think about this actually. and. I think what happened was I saw something on Twitter um, before the Glasgow conference, which I think was 2018, and I'd always been a football supporter, and I'd been for a while of my career as, as an academic researcher, and it kind of blew my mind that those two worlds could collide, because it had never really entered my mind that that was a thing, which now I know about the collective, and I've seen the great work that so many people do. It seems utterly ridiculous that I thought that, but... I just thought this sounds absolutely amazing. So sent um, sent something to to Dan and Paul, and yeah, just um, been a part of it ever since. So can you tell us a little bit about your research interests? Obviously, they're, they're going to be really relevant to the theme of this podcast. And how are you currently researching? Um, I think the discussion we had before about the experiment conditions you've got sound fascinating, and it'd be great to hear more about that. Um. I've researched lots of different elements of gambling behaviour, and obviously gambling is a it's an enormous subject with loads of different areas. So I do quite a lot of experimental work. Um, I also do lots of work with treatment seekers and treatment providers, kind of understanding gambling-related harms and things like that. But my main research focus, the, the stuff that I'm actually funded to do at UEL, is using um, virtual reality to better understand the influence of what we call within-game constructs on gambling behaviour. Uh, now, within-game constructs are things like um, a near-miss 
or a loss disguised as a win. So a near miss is something where if you if you can imagine you're playing a slot machine and you have to match three I don't know, three icons, three apples, say, to win. And the first two reels stop, and you've got apple, apple. And then on the third one, it stops. The apple stops just above or below. That's called a near miss. So you feel like you've won, um, but actually you've still lost. And, and those kind of outcomes have been shown to kind of increase um, increase gambling, even though that they're more aversive. They're always rated as kind of more unpleasant, but they increase the, the motivation to gamble within an individual. Um, the losses disguised as wins are really interesting um, because they're, they're a, an outcome that is particularly um, pertinent to things like roulette, which um, is one of the games available on the fixed odds betting terminals that was, that was all the kind of um, focus on a couple of years back. And the loss disguised as a win is where you win a little bit, but it's less than you initially staked. So let's say on a spin of roulette, you've staked uh, £20, you might win 15 back, and the machine will you know, flash with all the lights and the sounds uh, as the same as it would if you've won, which activates all the reward circuitry in the brain. But actually, the outcome is still objectively a loss. Your sort of uh, view on gambling in general and your theoretical view on that, and then how that links in with gambling's relationship with football, yeah, so I mean, so the, the near misses and the losses disguised as wins, I can touch on that first and how that links to sports betting is that within kind of a, a psych, psychology research, we know a bit about near misses, we know a bit about losses disguised as wins, but all that kind of research is mainly done in slot machine simulations. So some of the stuff that we're doing is actually um, looking at that, but in a sports betting context. Um, so, for example, the near misses, instead of two slot reels, it becomes if you've got um, a, an accumulator with five teams and four of them are winning and the fifth one, you know, they draw. So you've come really close to winning or you feel like you've come really close to winning, but actually you've still lost. Um, the losses disguised as wins can be linked to football and gambling in that there's different types of accumulators that you can now put on things like um, Yankees where, or Super Yankee where you still get paid a little bit even if not all your teams win. So even if let's say you get four out of five, then you don't lose everything. You can still get something back. And those kind of outcomes are, you know, they're shown to drive increased gambling and more gambling. So we're, we're really looking at how those actually, how those outcomes relate to sports betting. Can you tell us a, a bit about your view on gambling um, and where you stand sort of with your theoretical view as an academic um, about gambling just in general? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I guess... I mean, in general, I think gambling as a behaviour is not an inherently a bad thing. You know, it's been done for many, many years across many, many different cultures. Um, I, I do gamble a bit myself. I gamble pretty much exclusively on football because I think I know about it. <laughs> but, you, you um, me and many other people. My record maybe shows that I know less than I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think in terms of gambling and football, I think we've, we've reached something um, perhaps of a bit of a, of a saturation point with gambling and football. You know, I, I don't remember a time where one industry has been the shirt sponsor of so many teams in the top divisions. Um, there's adverts everywhere. It's on the on the advertising hoardings around the around the. Uh, sorry, around the pitch side. So you can't really escape gambling if, if you're interested in football. And I think recently, especially over the last couple of weeks, where there's been a lot of stuff in the media, I think possibly the, the groundswell of public opinion is, is turning against gambling, being so involved in football a little bit. You know, we've seen it talked about on things like Match of the Day and Football Focus. 
even Gary Lineker is, is tweeting about it. Um, so I think we've, we've possibly reached um, a bit of a saturation point. The research that you presented at the conference just gone in Sheffield is more close to you than maybe other people as a Derby fan. The issues around 32 Red and Wayne Rooney. Can you tell us a little bit more about the research and, and elaborate on this a bit further? Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that, that presentation at the, at the Football Collective Conference was... Um, it's not based on um, any specific research projects um, that we've done, um, but it was just really highlighting kind of some of the pros and cons that, that a deal like that can bring to both a player kind of and a club. And we know that there's, there's, a, there's a ton of positives from it from the club's perspective. You know, it's a bit of a... It's, a, it's, a, it's an impressive signing for a club like Derby to bring England's top goal scorer in. It's great for Bruni because he wants to further his coaching ambitions when he finishes playing, and uh, you know Derby are affording him that opportunity. So there's there is some positives, you know, from a commercial perspective, it's great for the club. Um, but then what we also kind of have to consider is is some like you mentioned some of the negative effects of it, particularly. Uh, the way the deal was funded um, was, has left uh, again. It's, it's left a bit of a bad taste in, in a few mouths. Like 32 Red essentially paying for Rooney, and then Derby giving him the number 32 squad number, and all that kind of just continues that, the, like the, the tightening of the closeness of the relationship between the club and the sponsor and the players. And that's, I think, something to be a little bit concerned about. So if we're looking at it from like a macro level perspective, do you think that gambling is now a key revenue stream within football or just sort of a temporary resident within that commercial gap that could maybe be taken over by say, any, anything really that, that can become popular within the future? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess a lot of these things will come and go in cycles. You know, there used to be a lot more tobacco and alcohol industry sponsorship of, of football and, and of other sports. Um, the danger is with football, if it hasn't already happened, is that it becomes completely over-reliant on gambling money. And then, and then what happens? How is that void filled if that money is removed? So, for, I mean, for example, using Derby as the example, 32 Red paid Derby an, an enormous amount of money to be on, on that shirt. <clears throat> and it's unlikely Derby would be able to find a sponsor from another industry that would be able to inject that amount of money into the club. So what I think we what we will see uh, coming up, um, <clears throat> excuse me, is I feel like the we have as I said we have reached something of a of a saturation point, and I think that we'll, what we'll probably see is that will be there will be some voluntary measures from the gambling industry um, that will kind of reduce the exposure. So we've already things like we've already seen things like the whistle to whistle advertising ban, and that's the kind of thing that's generally done by an industry like the gambling industry to ward off stronger legislative change. Um, such as an outright ban on shirt sponsorship. Can you tell us a little bit more about the whistle-to-whistle ban? Yeah, so the whistle-to-whistle ban came into effect, I think it was in August last year, so essentially for the start of this season. And that was where the gambling companies have voluntarily said they won't show any adverts during live football um, pre-9pm watershed from five minutes before kick-off to five minutes after. So there's no adverts immediately preceding kickoff. There's no adverts during the half-time break. Sorry, for, no adverts for gambling during the half-time break. And that's, that's a, that was a, a voluntary move from the gambling industry. Um, but interestingly, what we have seen this season, what I've noticed starting to happen is that you're getting games 
that previously might have kicked off at 7.45 or 8 o'clock. Suddenly we're finding that we've got games that are kicking off at 8.15, which on the face of it seems like a slightly unusual kickoff time. But then, of course, if kickoff is 8.15, half time is at 9 o'clock, straight after that watershed. And suddenly you find that the, the matches Does that also include the, the pitch side hoardings, the electric ones that, that always flash up with different ones? No, that's literally adverts during the during kind of the the commercial breaks. So I, I didn't know that. That's that's interesting to know. And I, and I noticed that you tweeted that about the game the other day. I think that is something maybe to to look out for more often. Um, yeah. If we look, I mean, the, the the crazy ones. If you ever watch, um, if you ever watch a game at Molyneux on the telly, that some of their advertising. Boards. I think they're like three deep. So at certain times you have like three boards all with gambling companies advertising them at the same time. So if we're talking about your current research, um, a journal article that you've got a lot of media attention for, um, exposure to gambling and alcohol marketing in soccer match day programmes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you've disseminated this work so far within uh, the mainstream media? Yeah, so that, that's been a, a bit a bit crazy, actually. Um, I don't think I've ever published a paper that's had quite so much attention. So it was, there was um, basically one of the key findings revolved um, kind of around the, the children's sections of programmes, and that was the bit that the, the media seemed to catch on to quite a lot. So it's been, it's been in The Guardian. It was, um, it was on the back page of the iNewspaper, and I had to do a... Uh, a live TV interview for Sky News on Boxing Day, which was quite nerve-wracking, but also quite amusing when we were, when I was trying to sort it out with the producer. She emailed me and said, okay, so where will you be? And me thinking, oh, she's been asked for specifics here, said, oh, well, it's Boxing Day, so I'm going to be at my mum's house. And she <laughs> replied saying, okay, I didn't need to know that much. I just meant, what town are you going to be in? Which is a little bit embarrassing, but... So can we talk a little bit about the, the key findings of the paper in terms of the widened exposure of gambling companies to fans and children, uh, the normalisation of gambling and gambling in the kids section of a programme. This is something I, I was interested in because I've, I've not got a programme for, for quite a few years now, so I didn't realise there was a, a kids section or I've never noticed that there is one before when I've been to football. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, absolutely. So for this particular study, <clears throat> um, we wanted to measure, basically we wanted to measure exposure to adverts and then what we also called incidental exposure to uh, gambling, alcohol and smoking. So adverts, um, I guess that's kind of obvious, that's like either a half page or a whole page advert for a specific company. But incidental exposure is something that's a bit more subtle in that that's, that would be where there was just um, a gambling company's logo in view when it's not an advert. So, for example, that might be a photo of a player of a team who's who are sponsored by a gambling company. So that that's what we call incidental exposure, where it's an advert, but it's not really an advert. Uh, I guess so. What we found um, there were more adverts for gambling than there was for alcohol. Um, there wasn't any smoking adverts. So, in terms of those three particular behaviours, there was way more significantly more adverts for gambling. Um, one of the things that was quite interesting is that the number of adverts per program didn't actually differ um, as a function of the shirt sponsor industry. So teams with gambling companies as their sponsor didn't have more gambling adverts than teams with a sponsor from a different industry. Um, 
The other thing that we looked at was the proportion of pages with incidental exposure to gambling and also alcohol and smoking. So how many, what proportion of pages in a program has exposure to one of those behaviours? And we found that there was more gambling than anything else. Um, the average was 22% of pages in each program. I'm sorry, I should say as well, we looked at every Premier League team, a program from every Premier League team and a program from every Championship team. And on average, there was 22% of pages had incidental exposure to gambling, but that went as high up as 51%, which I think, if I'm right in saying, the worst one was Swansea. So over half the pages of the Swansea program had some form of gambling logo on the page. Um, so you start to see that actually if you're just sitting at a match and it's half time and you're just flicking through the program, you're going to be exposed to gambling companies' logos um, pretty consistently. In terms of the children's stuff, um, that was really, 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 really interesting. So out of the 44 programs, I think it was 39 that had a, a dedicated children's section. So it's, you know, it's things like word searches, spot the difference, um, things like that. And out of those 44, yeah, 39 had children's programs and out of those 39, 59% had some gambling exposure even in the kids sections, um, which as you, as you can see, that's obviously pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's even in, you know, you could argue that actually children might not be particularly interested in the rest of the program, reading about historical games or whatever, but even the, you know, the fun stuff that's supposed to keep them entertained at halftime, you've still got pictures of players kind of with with gambling company logos on their shirts. One of the other things that was really interesting as well um, that we found was even when you have kind of news articles about football players doing really cool stuff kind of outside of football, um, a lot of that was still branded. So I think it was actually the Leeds programme we looked at that had this. You get players going to like a local hospital and meeting sick children, which is, you know, some of the amazing stuff that footballers do that they don't really, I don't think necessarily sometimes get enough credit for. But even when they're doing that kind of stuff, they're still wearing like 32 red branded T-shirts and training tops and stuff. So even going into a children's hospital, they're still indirectly advertising gambling to everyone who's looking at them. Weirdly enough, the, the, the Leeds shirt and the Leeds training gear has got two different gambling sponsors. Oh, uh, yes, so, yeah, and actually got yeah. Unibet and the other stuff. Yeah, definitely not got enough. Um, so have you got any uh, plans for future research um, in terms of this, in terms of measuring the impact of exposure and um, where do you see this going? Because it, it's a brilliant paper and I enjoyed reading it um, and I think it, it would be really important to, to carry it on. So what are your future plans for that? Um, yeah, so, so we've, we've got another plan. Um, we're doing it at the moment. The next paper is, is going to look at how some legislation that's supposed to change this has actually, whether it's had any impact or not. So in April last year, the Advertising Standards Agency introduced some new legislation around uh, gambling advertising. So we've got one set of programmes from before that legislation and one set from after. To, to actually see if that change in legislation has had any impact at all. And obviously, if, if it hasn't, then, then that raises some pretty serious questions about kind of the, the efficacy of the, of the legislation itself. One thing we discussed as well was the uh, issues of bet to stream that have been um, within the popular media so far. And another thing that I noticed away from gambling is that with the emergence of Amazon, I think there's four platforms now providing Premier League football. 
and if you were to subscribe to them all it's going to cost you around 700 pounds a year so it may be cheaper for people to actually bet to stream watch games um, but what do you think the sort of issues surrounding that are um, do you think it encourages problem gambling and what actions do you think should be taken if that is the case yeah I mean the, the, the whole bet to stream thing was an interesting one in that I, I I still can't decide if it was just the FA was incredibly naive or just a little bit stupid. And, you know, the, the FA sold the rights to stream the games to a third party, and it was that third party that then sold the rights to the gambling companies. Um, but I think one of the major problems with it is that there's a lot of talk, particularly around gambling, because it's a behaviour rather than substance, like there's a lot of talk about choice when it comes to gambling. Um, but what the whole bet to stream thing, uh, sorry, the bet, bet to do thing kind of does is take, takes away an element of that choice. And it means that if you want to watch your football team, you have to be involved with gambling somehow. You have to have created an account. And the problem with that is that a lot of, um, whilst kind of the, the industry likes us to look at TV advertising and things like that, they spend a large proportion of their marketing budget on online advertising. And we know that online advertising is much more dangerous because it's much more targeted to the actual behavior of the, indivi of the individual. So if I've logged in to, let's say, for example, a Bet365 account just to watch Derby, they'll know that I'm interested in football and they'll know that it's, it was that game that I was watching. So they've now got my account details, they've got my email address, and they can start to send me offers that are going to entice me in based on kind of my history with that website and that that we know is is a lot more dangerous for for putting people at risk of kind of developing gambling problems so just one final question for you steve um what do you, what is your overall view of gambling's um sort of position in academia um where do you think it's seen within the industry and what, within the research and are there any glaring gaps in knowledge that you the especially regarding football and gambling? Gambling research as, as within the addictions field is, is still relatively small and relatively new. Um, addictions fields have, have generally tended to focus on substance use, so kind of drug and alcohol use disorders. So behavioural addictions like gambling are sort of still seen as the new kids on the block. So we're still kind of trying to kind of almost prove ourselves kind of within that sphere. Um, in terms of gaps, um, there's so many gaps and so much we still don't know. There's, there's the gambling industry is constantly evolving and constantly developing new products and new ways to gamble. The, as psychologists, like we know very, very little about the impact of. So there's, there's things, even things like, uh, you know, in-play betting and cash outs and being able to modify your accumulator kind of while the games are going on. We know nothing about the, 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 the kind of the psychological impacts on and future behaviour. Um, there's also newer types of gambling like um, uh, loot boxes and gambling in video games. There's things like cryptocurrencies that we, we, we know absolutely nothing about really from a, from a research perspective. So there's an awful lot of stuff that we're going to look at. And that's it for part one of Betting on the Beautiful Game. Please join me, John and Steve for part two where we begin to unpick and discuss some of the discussion points such as normalisation and exposure to gambling and the timely impact of COVID-19 on the relationship between football and gambling. I'm looking